I must have been asked about this video more than any other. Why I stopped filling tear troughs from Dr. Gavin Chan at the Victorian Cosmetic Institute. It's a fantastic breakdown of an important issue, but in this video, I'm gonna explain why despite the case presented, I keep filling tear troughs. If you're looking forward to learning more on this topic, I really appreciate it if you can give the video a like. So, the title of this video is very black and white, and there is actually a lot of nuance to unpack and great learning from four different perspectives. There's Dr. Chan, Dr. Mobin Master, who we've had on live on my Instagram, Mr. Brian Mendelson, someone I'm aware of on YouTube, who I've also learned a lot from, and Dr. Ben Burt. So, despite the beautiful case put forward, I'm also going to explain why I still treat tear troughs. Let me start, as always, by reflecting on the potential value of this treatment to patients. This is, after all, the only way to justify anything that we do. My experience with patients is that a good result in this area is extremely impactful. Eyes, after all, are the window to the soul, as they say, the center point of communication and beauty, and there's a lot of potential benefit if we can soften these shadows. But why are these shadows so important to people? As a dad of two young boys, I have watched a huge number of Disney films multiple times, and I like to use the time to appreciate how animators illustrate faces in order to create a feeling in our minds which enhance the characters in the story. Everything is about communication. I believe more than beauty, patients are trying to control what they communicate in terms of health, attitude, and of course age. When you observe the illustrations of a Disney animator, all of what you see is consciously created to make us feel a certain way about the characters. The young princess and the evil stepmom are drawn to purposefully create a different feeling in us as they watch. The young princess's eyes are framed by catchlights, while the evil stepmom has tear trough shadows, which are part of the reason we instinctively feel differently when we see them. Tiredness, grumpiness, and anger can be associated with these tiny shadows, which in turn can impede our patients in their non-verbal communication which can affect their psychological state, which in turn affects the behavior and ultimately their ability to survive and thrive in society. Survival of course depends on our ability to build trust and connections with other people so that we can collaborate. There's no argument that the results are worth striving for, but this video calls into question whether we are likely to get the results we actually want and at what expense. For all the reasons a great result is particularly valuable, a poor result, side effect or complication is proportionately upsetting. And this is why we must consider the intervention carefully. When I looked at this video, I found eight core points and concepts put forward, and I will explain each and give my take. The first point is that what you see immediately after a tear trough treatment is not a true result. Fine skin plus hydrophilic products plus a goal for perfection make for a blind tightrope walk. We essentially have no room for error, with a dermis of only 0.2 millimeters in thickness in an area that we look at the most with products that essentially grow unpredictably over time. The problem is one of precision of injection and predictability of products over time. Like Dr. Chan, I started treating tear troughs before we had less hydrophilic, high quality products. Dr. Chan talks about using one to two mils of products way back in 2005. And I vividly recall trying to learn the skill with similar products, and I too experienced the disappointment of needing to reverse procedures. I've always felt terrible when treatments fail, and this made me become extremely cautious when treating tear troughs, and much better at selecting the right patients. 
but there's only so much you can do if the product expands unpredictably under the skin. For me, the trepidation combined with the awareness of the possible benefit became instrumental in how I approached this area. I still wanted to get the result for the patient, but I started to do everything I could to reduce the volume in the tear trough and get the result. And it was really hard. Looking back, I think new products arrived just in time for me and the technique that I'd honed on bad products became a much more certain experience than it had been. We'll get more to the technique later. The second point made so brilliantly by Dr. Moban in his research and still so relevant to everything we do in all parts of the face is that fillers appear to last much longer than they say on the packet. I quite soon noticed that certain patients would get much longer out of products than others. Years would go by and they would not need retreatment. Dr. Moban has now shown this with an MRI and there are products visible even 12 years later. Sounds great, but in tear troughs, it's a risk for the same reason as above. There is so little margin for error, even a 5% increase in volume or a shift of position could create a visible bag over time requiring reversal. Dr. Moban also features in this video for a third point, which is an interesting complication we also discussed on a live video back in 2021. Dr. Chan reflects on a case of tear trough puffiness which was resistant to treatment and Dr. Master's MRI studies established that the reason for this was that the filler had been placed behind the orbital septum. This very thin membrane clearly forms a barrier protecting the orbit from the external aspects of the face, particularly as far as hyaluronidase is concerned. When I first learned about this complication, I was quite shocked. In my mind, this would not be a frequent occurrence. I've now heard of patients seeking out MRIs after watching this video only to find no evidence of filler. So it really is a fascinating complication, but one we need much more data about. I've not seen anything to suggest this is occurring frequently, and I do hope there's even less of a chance of it thanks to the work done by Dr. Master and Dr. Chan on this topic to make people more aware. I know I certainly think about it when I'm training and treating in this area. It would certainly be an interesting study to take a random cohort of patients who've had tear trough filler and see how many of them have evidence of post-septal filler. From my perspective as an experienced injector, the lesson from this element of the video is simply don't inject into the orbit. Sounds obvious, but as a trainer with years of experience, I've stood over people many times and seen them become confused and start to approach areas close to the orbit, either with a cannula where they've lost their bearings or with a needle. I've spoken about this many times about how anatomical resolution is one of the ways experienced clinicians differ from the rest. Millimeter differences are often invisible to the inexperienced. And this is one of the other key takeaways from this video, which we will get to later. My position is that overall, one of the most interesting parts of this video is not on its own a reason to never treat the tear trough in the same way as a vascular occlusion is not a reason to never treat lips. Most helpful of all is that I do believe a conscientious injector now conscious of the risks thanks to this work will likely do things to avoid this complication. Hopefully we'll also get more data on the precise risk of this complication over time. The fourth interesting point made in this video is that the tear trough shadow is essentially caused by the tear trough ligament. So adding volume is inherently a flawed strategy. It was amazing to see the author of the paper, Mr. Brian Mendelssohn, being interviewed in this video. He's someone I've also learned a lot from on YouTube. And to hear him describe how they discovered the tear trough ligament is something well worth watching in its own right. With this understanding, it is clear to me that in a very young person with a tear trough shadow, treating the area as if it's volume loss will likely result in filler spreading either side of the ligament, as Dr. Chan concludes. This point I absolutely agree with. But I believe it's only for one cohort in particular. Young patients with a ligament is the primary cause of the shadow. 
I don't see the presence of the ligament as a reason we cannot expect to get a good result. In fact, many of the signs of aging we treat are essentially the shadows and disruptions caused by the ligaments. The nasolabial fold, medialabial fold disruptions, as well as the temple and cheek, are all related to ligamentous attachments beneath, which become visible with age. We treat them routinely with good results. I believe we can separate tear trough shadows roughly into primary and secondary tear trough shadows. The learning I get from the anatomical study and from observing many young people with tear trough shadows is that there are patients seeking treatment at a young age where the primary cause is a tight ligament present from youth. These are of course not our ideal patients and I agree that filler probably is a bad solution for a primary tear trough shadow but potentially an excellent solution for the other category I see which is the secondary tear trough shadows which develop with age. My mental model of the tear trough shadow is that it is age-related disruption in the relationships between several fat pads and the ligament. The ligament increasingly becomes a visible boundary between fat compartments, which hypertrophy or atrophy with age, as they do at different rates. The boundary between the compartments, the ligament, becomes increasingly visible. There are multiple fat compartments around the eye which can contribute to the tear trough shadow. We have postseptal fat, which often herniates from the orbit with age and creates a shadow. The suborbicularis oculi fat, or the sooth, which may atrophy with age and cause a shadow. And we have the medial cheek fat pad, which sometimes atrophies and causes a shadow. All of these patterns of light and shade are darkest where we find the ligament. But if they are age-related, the true underlying cause is the altering balance of fat pads and not the ligament itself. The take-home for me with regard to this point is not to try and remove the tear trough from people in their prime. Unless there is a relatively depleted fat pad you can replace, lifting the ligament will not work and surgical options will give much better results. The test Dr. Gavin demonstrates is a good one. The gentle compression of the area beneath the tear trough ligament with a cotton bud, which is what I do in my clinic, can show how raising the fat pad as it meets the ligament affects the shadow. Where the ligament is the primary cause, you will see little improvement. And rarely, a slight seesawing of the fat compartments where there is a bulge on the other side, but no improvement in the depth of the shadow. Dr. Chan closes with a reminder that it is our first duty to do no harm. In practice, with any invasive procedure, this really means justifying and balancing the risk for each individual patient, as every intervention includes some element of harm, even if it's just a bruise. What's key for me is that both the patient and the clinician both anticipate a result which outweighs the potential for harm. I do believe we must start telling patients routinely that filler can last many, many years. And this means the potential to diffuse and to change in its properties is one of the variables we must accept and be prepared to navigate. It's also important to understand and discuss with our surgical colleagues the surgical options that we have for tear trough shadows. Overall, we want to help our patients find the best balance for their particular situation. In summary, my position is that with good patient selection and a very healthy fear of adding too much volume in the tear trough, good results can be enjoyed. With a good consultation and patient selection, it should become rare to only treat the tear trough in isolation. With small adjustments in the cheek, both lateral and medial, the lateral lid cheek junction, and with good patient selection, should result in only small volumes being re required anywhere near the true tear trough. When you are near the ligament, be aware of the concept Dr. Gavin describes, which I agree with. A tight ligament will result in filler going either side of the ligament. I also suspect that there are important and common variations in the tear trough ligament, which can make for very different treatment options. Start to notice in your patients where the tear trough is V-shaped or U-shaped. 
the meeting point of the orbicularis oculi retaining ligament and the zygomatic ligament at the tear trough often creates quite different challenges. But I think this is probably something for another video. I would like to thank Dr. Gavin Chan and the other contributors for an excellent video that's got everyone talking. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this channel for more learning. I'll see you next week.